0: Off the with the steamboats, into gobblers and wallows Come at the ground line, making a sound. The smell of death is all around. And at night when the cool wind blows, no one cares. No Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more, back at the beginning on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves the reputation that he has for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast is going to be to examine the climax, the falling action, and resolution of the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I'm also going to weigh in on whether or not I happen to like the ending itself so we can start to parse out the difference between objectivity and subjectivity when it comes to engaging with the ending. Endings of Stephen King's works. So I apologize, guys. Um, It's been a while. It's been um, over 10 days since I released the last episode on Christine, which gave us the first break um, in terms of uh, the, the objective and the subjective. Last week, if you remember, when discussing the ending of Christine, based on the factors that went into the ending, I could not give it the rating of being an objectively good ending because it didn't uh, really follow through with the character, the themes, uh, or or I don't remember what I said about the plot, but it just it felt less than. However, um, because Stephen King can can still write um, something that isn't inherently good uh, in his sleep and somehow make it work. I liked it. I liked the ending of Christine, but I don't happen to think that it's a good ending to what the two-thirds leading up to the ending had uh, set up. So that was the first time that uh, we had really had a a break in terms of the endings, Uh, not really meeting the the, the expectations uh, for the potential of how it could end. And uh, so, I mean, I still think that despite that, What this podcast is proving so far is that, yes, Stephen King does have a reputation for not being able to conclude his stories satisfactorily, but if I'm analyzing this correctly and you agree with the analysis thus far, then so far I would say that uh, Stephen King's works at least up until the point of Christine, have been uh, successful in his ability to land the endings. And today, we are digging in six feet deep uh, to discuss the the conclusion to Pet Cemetery. Now, Pet Cemetery is a story that I have discussed at length. I have uh, I did a very very deep dive, um, one that I think about a lot during my review of the book. I discussed the um, the the Mary Lambert adaptation. I reviewed the more recent adaptation that came out uh, last year, um, and then just recently I discussed Pet Cemetery in a listeners' email a few episodes back. So this is going to be a really interesting one to talk about uh, in terms of in terms of endings um, because Pet Cemetery. Still, after all these years, after all these centuries, and after all the pages that Stephen King has ever published, it still manages to be one of the, the bleakest stories that he has ever written. And I say that and with no criticism. It's just, uh, just what it is what it is. And um, we'll get to the ending to see if it uh, manages to be both a objectively good and a subjectively good ending okay so i'm not going to do any listener email today i'm not going to read any itunes reviews but if you do have any time on your hands please head on over to itunes so you could leave uh, a review and a rating because that would help me out when i first sat down to do this podcast five years ago there weren't many stephen king uh, podcasts out there um, but thankfully, the good news is there are a lot of Stephen King podcasts out there with more yet to come, and if you do like this podcast and you do recommend this podcast and you would like to continue to see this podcast towards the, towards the top of the iTunes search for people who do the Stephen King cast, then, you know, I don't ask for money, um, but uh, just uh, a couple minutes of your time to, to write a review would really help me out, um, and you can also follow me on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. And uh, feel free to write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com to discuss all things, Stephen King. but if you want to dive into one of the endings of Stephen King or what your thoughts are on how Stephen King uh, you know manages to um, you know land his endings, if you have any opinions on it, just write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. And I did want to say that I will be reviewing if it bleeds um, I, 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 would, I would actually, I was kind of hoping by this point to sit down to start recording um, my thoughts on If It Bleeds, which is Stephen King's Kingsley's collection of short stories, but I haven't gotten it yet. I placed my order mid-April. Um, it was supposed to come within a couple days, but then I saw online that I was not the only one. It said that then it, it was it was pushed back to May, Um, according to Amazon, it is in my town and it's been in my town since yesterday, four o'clock in the morning, but it hasn't been sent out and it's due to arrive on Wednesday. And I say all this, like, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm kind of complaining. Um, and maybe I am a little bit, but I shouldn't because right now, um, any, uh, anyone working in either the, the post office or UPS or Amazon um, definitely has their hands full. So my heart goes out to all you, um, all you workers out there that, that's, that are making our lives easier just sitting at home and not having to go out on stores. So um, I just want to let you know that I am planning on reviewing uh, If It Bleeds... But um, I just have to wait for, for the book to, to show up. And I thought about, you know, Kindle, um, but I, I want to hold it. I want to hold the book in my hands um, and crack it open. Uh, and at the end of this episode, I'm going to have some recommendations for people as well. Uh, one of the recommendations that I have this week is a book um, that you could order online. Um, so wait till the end of the podcast for that. Okay, guys, so I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary for Pet Cemetery, so that I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis for the conclusion of the story itself. Lewis Creed, a doctor from Chicago, is appointed director of the University of Maine's campus health service. He moves to a large house near the small town of Ludlow with his wife, Rachel, their two young children, Ellie and Gage, and Ellie's cat, Church. From the moment they arrive, the family runs into trouble. Ellie hurts her knee and Gage is stung by a bee. Their new neighbor, an elderly man named Jud Crandall, comes to help. He warns Lewis and Rachel about the highway that runs past their house, which is, frequently, which is frequented by speeding trucks. Judd and Lewis quickly become close friends. Since Lewis's father died when he was three, he sees Judd as a surrogate father. A few weeks after the creeds move in, Judd takes the family on a walk in the woods behind their home. A well-tended path leads to a pet cemetery where the children of the town bury their deceased animals. The outing provokes a heated argument between Lewis and Rachel the next day. Rachel disapproves of discussing death, and she worries about how Ellie may be affected by what she saw at the cemetery. It is explained later that Rachel was traumatized by the early death of her sister Zelda from spinal meningitis, an issue that is brought up several times in the flashbacks. Lewis empathizes with his wife and blames her parents for her trauma, who left Rachel at home alone with her sister when she died. Lewis himself has a traumatic experience during the first week of classes. Victor Pascal, a student who has been fatally injured in an automobile accident, addresses his dying words to Lewis personally, even though the two men are strangers. On the night following Pascal's death, Lewis experiences what he believes is a very vivid dream in which he meets Pascal, who leads him to the deadfall at the back of the cemetery and warns him not to go beyond there. Lewis wakes up in bed the next morning, convinced it was in fact a dream, until he finds his feet in bedsheets covered with dried mud and pine needles, nevertheless, Lewis dismisses the dream as the product of the stress that he experienced during Pascal's death, coupled with his wife's lingering anxieties about the subject of death. On Halloween, Judge Judd's wife Norma suffers a near-fatal heart attack, but makes a quick recovery thanks to Lewis's help. Judd is grateful and decides to repay Lewis after church is run over outside his home around Thanksgiving. Rachel and the kids are visiting Rachel's parents in Chicago, but Louis frets over breaking the bad news to Ellie. Sympathizing with Louis, Judd takes him to the cemetery, supposedly to bury church, but instead of stopping there, Judd leads Louis further to the real cemetery, an ancient burial ground that was once used by the Mi'kmaq tribe. There, Louis buries the cat on Judd's instruction. The next afternoon, Church returns home. The usually vibrant and lively cat now acts ornery and, in Lewis's words, a little dead. Church hunts for mice and birds, ripping them apart without eating them. He also smells so bad that Ellie no longer wants him in her room at night. Judd confirms that Church has been resurrected and that Judd himself once buried his dog there when he was younger. Lewis, deeply disturbed, begins to wish that he hadn't buried Church there. Several months later, two-year-old Gage is killed by a speeding truck. Overcome with despair, Lewis considers bringing his son back to life with the help of the burial ground, Judd. Guessing what Lewis is planning, attempts to dissuade him by telling him the story of Timmy Baderman, the last person who was resurrected by the burial ground. Timmy Baderman was killed in action during World War II. Timmy's body was shipped back to the United States, and his father Bill buried Timmy in the burial ground. Timmy returned malevolent, terrorizing the people of the town with secrets that Judd asserts he had no earthly way of knowing. Timmy was stopped by his father, Bill, who killed Timmy and set their house on fire before shooting himself. Judd states that he believes that whatever came back was not Timmy but a demon that had possessed his corpse. He concludes that sometimes dead is better and states that the place has a power, its own evil purpose, and that may have caused Gage's death because Judd introduced Lewis to it. Despite Judd's warning and his own reservations about the idea, Lewis's grief and guilt spur him to carry out his plan. Lewis exhumes Gage's body from his grave and inters him in the burial ground. Gage returns from the dead, entirely different from when he was alive. Now malicious in both his words and his actions, he finds one of Lewis's scalpels and kills both Judd and Rachel. After tricking and killing Church, Lewis confronts his son and also sends him back to the grave with a lethal injection of chemicals from his medical supply stock. After burning the Crandall house down, Lewis returns to the burial ground with his wife's corpse, thinking that if he buries the body faster than he did gauges, there will be a different result. Following all these tragic events, Lewis has also aged in physical appearance, with white hair and wrinkles. One of his colleagues, Steve Masterson, notices him walking into the woods with Rachel's body. Steve, while fearful and concerned, is influenced by the power of the burial ground, too, and even considers helping Louis bury Rachel, but he flees in terror and eventually moves away to St. Louis. Later, Louis sits indoors alone, playing solitaire, and Rachel's reanimated corpse walks up behind him and drops a cold hand on his shoulder while her voice raps, Darling. We're going to talk about the ending. Of Pet Cemetery, we have to talk about where to start. Um, so we are going to discuss everything from the climax onward. The climax, the falling action, and the resolution. So that would begin when Lewis unearths Gage and buries him in the Pet Cemetery. Um, so this is the conclusion to the climax. I'm sorry of of the conflict of the story, which is of man versus death and his attempt to conquer it. Um, so this is him refusing to accept death. And so everything here onward is really the final act and the consequences for Lewis's actions, which means that in the falling action, Gage returns from the dead, kills Judd, um, and Rachel, and then Lewis has to put, uh, down his undead monster zombie child. And then the resolution is Lewis burns the house down and buries Rachel in the Mi'kmaq burial ground. Rachel returns. All right, so everything basically from Lewis uh, unearthing Gage onward. So here is the criteria for a good ending. I'm going to ask a series of questions and then hold the, the conclusion to the questions posed here. So the first question is, does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters, actions, conflicts, or themes in the book? I would say Yes. The story chronicles the complete destruction of Lewis's existence, his hopes, his dreams, his family, his soul. We meet him at the beginning of the novel with a new house full of promise for his family, and by the end, his dream has turned into a nightmare from which he can never awaken. More importantly, King managed to capture his growing despair and madness, so that when the time comes for him to dig up Gage and bury him in the Micmac burial ground, while you don't agree with his actions, you understand why that the character is making the choice that he's making right until the very end when he repeats the same mistake with Rachel. You understand it. Remember, denial is part of the grieving process. For Lewis to continually deny the curse of the burial grounds in the hopes that his family will come back is not just within his character, but it's appropriate to the human experience. So I would say that Lewis especially, but all the other characters, um, Rachel... Getting a sense that something's wrong. Her flying, you know, back to to to, to save her family. Um, Judd realizing that he has made a mistake and what happens to Judd. Um, we love Judd. Judd is great. He's a great character. I might have called him the best supporting character uh, that that King has ever created. Um, that sounds like something that I would say he's fantastic. For him to be killed is so brutal and so raw and that one packs a punch. But his death is necessary for a couple reasons. One, King isn't pulling any punches. It is a book about death and how death conquers all. And no matter what you do to try and stop it, death will come for you. It will come for everyone you love. It will sweep away your memory and your dreams and your potential and every hope that you ever had there's no beating it It it's a truly um despair filling concept but it's truthful and in order to live out that truth we have to see it in action which means that our characters need to be swept from the board mercilessly which is what happens here this is a, a very um consistent conclusion of its characters with what the premise and the promise of the story itself is. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? I would say yes, for all of the reasons stated above. The unearthing of Gage is ghoulish, something out of an EC comic, but tinged with sympathy from the reader because of the way that King had managed to capture Lewis's mourning after Gage was hit by the truck. From the ghost of Victor Pascal to the introduction of the undead church, the resurrection of Gage was a necessary step in the conclusion of the story, and King absolutely nailed it. Next question. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yeah, um, yes, yes, absolutely. It's the story of a man's inability to accept death. As I've stated, it's one of the bleakest stories that King has told, not just because of the dead child at its center, but because of what is at its heart. That just doesn't matter what we do in life. Oz, the great and terrible, will always win, as we see in the conclusion of this story. Next question is, um, it it, it doesn't necessarily uh, make an ending... So let me just ask a question first. What is the most famous scene in the novel, and does it appear in the conclusion of the story? The reason I say that is because if it happens, if the, if the most famous scene does happen to be in the ending of the book, um, it certainly helps the ending of the book um, or story, but I don't think that it, it hurts the book if it doesn't include it, but it's just something that I, I like to, to pose anyway. But I would say that the most famous scene in the novel is is Gage's death, getting hit by that truck it's probably the most iconic scene from the book uh, it doesn't take place in the conclusion of the story but it definitely sets everything up that that occurs afterwards um, are there any other factors uh, that we need to consider here um, this one is 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 a hard one to break apart between liking um and being a good ending um it, it's not exactly what you would call a good time read you know when you think about a good beach read um, or something to, to take your mind off stuff um, it might not be I would not necessarily recommend pet cemetery um, and for for more thoughts on pet cemetery just go back a couple episodes where I I, I uh, respond to a listener's email about pet cemetery um, about uh, a misunderstanding of, of uh, how I feel about bleakness in in books. Um, Just in case anyone uh, thinks that I... I, Because really what it all stemmed from was a criticism that I've had about Cujo for a long time running. And what a mean and angry book that it is. And I happened to... At the time of of my reread of Cujo, I I didn't like it um, as much as I, I had remembered. And I had said that if someone had read Cujo and did not like it and never read another Stephen King book, A... I couldn't blame them, and B, um, that it's a shame because the, the, the mean-spiritedness within Cujo is not indicative of King's overall thematic body of work, the message that he, he tends to um, play with um, and expand and explore. And I think that in me making a statement like that, th- there could be some misunderstanding about how deep the criticisms towards Kujo go. Or how deep the criticisms towards books that don't tend to focus on the thematic exploration of content and community and how once we band together and let others in our lives that's when we're able to defeat the challenges which is a very pro-humanistic optimistic look that Stephen King happens to explore many times Um, so I don't think that just because a book is bleak or bad things happen to characters that you care about that it is not worth a read and it's not good. I'm not saying that. Um, but I, I think that it is worth exploring. And with Cujo itself, I felt that the particular ratio um, and, and, and the particular makeup of, of that book skewed a little bit to mean-spirited um and of course, that was famously written during a, a, an alcohol and cocaine-fueled binge that Stephen King doesn't even remember reading um, or writing. So there was definitely a lot. Um, it is an angry story. It should be an angry story. Um, but I, I just happen to feel it. Uh, it's a little bit too mean-spirited. Whatever. But that's Cujo. I've talked about Cujo at length. Um, the ending of Pet Cemetery, all of Pet Cemetery, is a brutal read it's absolutely brutal it's not a good hangout it's wonderfully written it forces you to go to places you don't want to think about anyone with a young child obviously um, who has never read pet cemetery you might not want to read it or maybe it is the time to read it um because you are you're, you're that much closer to the sentiment and the feelings and the emotion within the book itself but it's definitely something for you to um, enter at your own risk, so to speak. You know, I think that I had said that I was never going to reread *Pet Cemetery again um, after after the last reread because it is such a heavy hang. And you know what? It, it is, um, you know, a cliche to say that once you have kids, things change, but it's certainly true. Um, and that was the the first um, time I had reread. Uh, Pat cemetery I had a child on the way and you know reading about the death of potential and the death of love and the, the death of hope and the death of a child and the breaking of those bonds it just it's it's not it's not a good hang which again it doesn't necessarily mean that it's quote unquote bad and so I'm just saying that it, with such a, a heavy and, and bleak um, and and with a book full of so much despair uh, the, the questions that I'm about to ask now of whether or not it is good and whether or not I like it, that's a really weird question to be asking. Do I like it? Um, and liking it is the subjective question that I'll get around to first. So the ending, so from the climax onward, is it one that I happen to like? The answer is yes. I do like it. Um, because it is ghoulish, and King does go for it. Um, and because I admire his... The... The, the precision and his, his fortitude in exploring this concept um, and how well he is able to execute it. And you are hooked. Um, you are in a death lock with the page where you are forced to watch Lewis completely obliterate his life and his soul. Um, and you just feel for him as his, his world becomes a living nightmare and one of his own making in some regard, but you know he doesn't deserve what happened to him, um, or his family. Uh, it, it, it's 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 awful to watch, but you can't turn away. And I appreciate what he did um, to to make me care so much. It's an ending that I like, even if it's not like fun, obviously. And is it a good ending? Yeah, of course it's a good ending. It's a fantastic, phenomenal, dark, um, horrible ending it's a it's a great button um the 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 darling bit at the end with rachel coming back and him playing solitaire the kitchen it's just it's good it is a good ending it is the perfect summation of the themes and the characters and the conflicts and and the plot and everything that we're looking for out of a book for all of the reasons that i had explained earlier in this podcast when i was posing those questions yes it is a good ending it happens to be one that i like so um that brings us to me liking 9 out of 9 endings so far, um, and I would say 8 of the 9 endings are good. Christine, um, last week, was the anomaly. Uh, Christine, while I happen to like the ending, uh, I, I can't say that it's a good ending for what he had set up earlier in that book. Have any thoughts on Pet Cemetery or anything that I had uh, said in this episode, just write into to Stephen KingCast at Yahoo.com um okay guys so what i'm going to do now is give you some recommendations about some some stuff that i've been engaging with since we've all been um in in various stages of uh you know social distancing quarantining staying at home and and doing our part to to flatten the curve and Keep everybody safe, including ourselves. So recently I was looking at comiXology just to see, you know, what I could um, pass the time with. If there's anything on sale, if there were any trade paperbacks that I haven't um, gotten around to that I've wanted to to read. Um, And I saw an image of a megalodon swimming underneath a little um, piece of... uh, uh, debris floating in the water with a, a woman on top of it and it was a striking image and it was of a comic book called Carthago, which I had never heard of and then I clicked on it and lo and behold there were 10 volumes of this uh, and I'd never heard of it and I did a little bit of research and there's not a lot of info out there on the internet but from what I can gather it's a, originally a French published comic book Um, And each of the volumes are around 60 pages, so not, you know, not trade paperback length, but, um, you know, like a double sized comic book issue. And so I was intrigued. I did a, you know, Google image search just to see what some of the art looked like and the art really hooked me. And so what I saw were a lot of pages of um, megalodons swimming around modern day waters. Um, other uh, sea creatures like chronosauruses, Plesiosauruses, and I got very, very intrigued. Um, and so I said, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I was hooked. It basically is, uh, I'm not going to give too much away, but it is a globe-trotting international adventure story taking place in the modern day that includes a number of researchers it includes um corporate espionage and a, a, and it includes a 100 an over 100 year old carpathian billionaire adventurer who at one point had um uh discovered the the yeti in the himalayas and there is a A great flashback sequence to that. There is futuristic underwater technology built by um, this billionaire. Um, He has an incredible underwater um, vehicle that he's able to get everybody around in. There is a girl with a mysterious link uh, to the ocean and sea life. There are mysterious ruins that are discovered all throughout the, the, the bottom of the sea uh, around the world. So the, the fact that Megalodons are, are in it, that's really just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, for what the, this particular story is. And it has you know a clear beginning, middle, and an end. And as I was reading it, 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 it didn't, to me, read like a comic book with comic book sensibilities of of when to end a particular chapter or when to end or build up to a certain beat visually, though the visuals are astounding. I probably wouldn't have stuck with it if it didn't have such strong um, artistry from N.E.O. uh, Bufay, Christoph Christoph Beck is the writer, by the way. Um, But it read more like a novel. Um, It read more like something that... um, you know, so I'm a big fan of Steve Alton's Meg books, which have gotten more um, and more outlandish in all the right ways, to the point where it now involves time travel. Uh, so this, it's not quite as crazy as that, but this is this is a big this is a big novel that really captures the the, the mystery and the awe and the wonder of. Of, of uh, the oceans And undersea And you know I always want there to be Undersea sea creatures and monsters And um, glimpses of Of prior Civilizations so if you're a fan Of sea monsters And you're a fan of Underwater exploration and you're A fan of um, uh, You know like Atlantis ruins And if you're a fan of uh, You know kids that can breathe underwater then this is this is definitely and yetis uh this is definitely the 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 book for you so carthago by christoph beck and neo uh buffy uh you can order on comiXology and read it right there on your phone or your tablet i strongly recommend it it was a lot of fun it's just it just hit me in all the right ways that's exactly what i was looking for i've kind of been on an underwater kick lately oh that was another recommendation i have is underwater um Like was supposed to come out in like 2017, but because of uh, uh, what's in face, TJ Miller, they had to to push it back. Um, That it's a that's an enjoyable film. Uh, My wife and I just watched it on the couch one night. You know, it just knows exactly what it is. Um, You know, it treats underwater as deep space, and they're walking on the bottom of the ocean like they would be if on the surface of another planet. Uh, You know, it is a tight, claustrophobic underwater thriller horror monster movie. And it's exactly what I wanted it to be. I also checked out Sea Fever, um, which I had heard a lot of good things about. Um, and I felt it was okay. Uh, you know, it was gross and it was gooey. And it, you know, was tense. But it, it, to me, it, it didn't... It, I kept expecting it to be more than it was. And maybe that was just me buying a little bit too much in the hype i i I don't know i think it's worth checking out um but i it just wasn't what i i had fully wanted it to be um sea fever but you know check it out you know small um independent uh irish movie about you know shit that goes down on the coast uh, off the coast when they're stuck on a boat go for it um, because it's it's definitely worth um, a watch so those are some some water-based horror and adventure stories that, that you guys can check out Carthago underwater sea fever um, sea fever actually would be a good companion piece to the bay the blumhouse movie from 10 years ago now it's been a while um that's a good one that that's an icky gory, gooey movie for you. I, I should probably check out the bag and good, good for a time, you know, during a contagion pandemic, I would say. All right. Um, I recently had um, purchased Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chbosky who uh, famously had written The Perks of Being a Wallflower, a book that I had really enjoyed when it came out. I saw the movie. I thought the movie was fine, but the, the book was just one of those things that just, you know... You, Bosky did an amazing job at just capturing that feeling of of being that age and there there's some wonderful sequences that are, are, are truly able to um elicit the emotion that one feels during that time of being alive and captures little moments that you know you you forget as you get older and how much those little moments meant um when you were whatever age it was like 14 15 16 um, you know, I remember one particular sequence of them just driving in a car and how it was the most important thing in the world that has ever happened to the main character. And it's so truthful, and it's so honest, and it, it came from a writer who just, you know, a, a word that I like to use a lot of time is authenticity, and there was so much authenticity in that book, and the writing, and you cared about the characters. Um, so he wrote um, a horror story called Imaginary Friend, and I was very, very excited. Um, So what I will say without giving away too much is I'm very curious and excited to see what he has in store next. Because one thing that is beyond a shadow of a doubt is this man knows how to write characters. And he knows how to write um, a story. I was thoroughly invested in the lives of the characters within this book. I cared about them. Um, he, he does a very, very good job at painting the, the, um, the characters and the setting and the conflicts within. Um, I will say, however, that the story itself seemed to get away from him. This is my own personal opinion. That there weren't enough rules to the, the goings, the supernatural goings on. Um, And by the end, there are so many weird variables occurring within the town and the characters that it was just a little too loose for me to really um, care about the conclusion because it was kind of like, well, anything can happen. Um, And that is not always the best thing. Um, I obviously can't get into too much without spoiling anything, but despite the fact that I think that the second half of the book, not even the the full-on conclusion, but the second half of the book, um, there's a a steep decline in uh, the quality of story for the reasons that I had just described, but even though the story itself um, kind of goes off the rails, it's still wonderfully written. Um, and you care about the characters, even though everything that's occurring around the characters, in my opinion, is kind of ludicrous. Um, but I, I would still check it out for the quality of the writing itself, and because I like to believe that he's someone that um, will be uh, continuing uh, his his journey into speculative and horror fiction. Um, because um, though I don't think it was the best book. Like I said, I um, was very hooked, and I, I want to see what he has next. So if you haven't checked it out, it's worth checking out for for no other reason than to just shoot me an email and let me know what your thoughts on Imaginary Friend um, are. Okay, guys, that's all I have this week. Um, you know, I hope that everyone is, is staying safe and staying sane, um, and I'll be back uh soon it won't be as long as this past week was but um but uh but yeah um may have long days and pleasant nights and i'll see you here next week where mon spells stephen king cast i don't, be buried in a bed cemetery. I don't want to live my life